tuning in to the online broadcast network, AfterBuzz TV. Over 20 million weekly downloads in over 150 countries and your number one source for after-show entertainment. AfterBuzz TV, the destination for TV superfans. Producing aftershows for over 300 of your favorite TV shows. Interviewing celebrities and showrunners. And bringing you behind-the-scenes exclusives. All thanks to E! Entertainment's Maria Menounos, producer Kevin Undergaro, and internet leader Akamai. Now, let the buzz begin! Hello, AfterBuzzers, and thank you for tuning in for another episode of AfterBuzz TV's The Voice Of, where we talk to the voices behind your favorite television characters from movies, televisions, games, everything that you can think of. Today we have a very special guest. Never thought I'd get him in the studio, but you know what? He's a super nice guy and decided to grace us with his presence. <laughs> you may know him as the Green Lantern, or Wilt from Imaginary Friends, or most commonly, Hermes Conrad from Futurama. Uh, thank you so much for coming in, Phil Lamar. It's great to have you. Oh, thanks, Steve. It's my pleasure, man. Oh, man. I'm, I'm super excited because when when our, my first guest for the show was Phil Phil Levitt mm-hmm. from Seven Horse. Uh, if you haven't heard the interview, go check it out. And when he emailed me saying, "You want Phil Lamar?" and I'm like, "Yeah," <laughs> <laughs> I was actually really excited because I didn't think I'd get a chance to talk to somebody that I've seen so often throughout my life. Just growing up, oh. I mean, I, I I grew through the '90s. I watched right. Mad TV. I watched uh, Samurai Jacks, one of my favorite shows as a kid. Oh, it's great! Show. And then Futurama as becoming a young teen, young adult. That's like that is the jazz. Oh, cool! So it's like really cool to actually get to talk to you. I wanted to just kind of cover early life, career. Okay. A lot of the shows, how you got involved with some of them, right. and kind of your thoughts on the fan bases for some of them. Oh, sure. So, I noticed you you went to Harvard High School. You you are Los Angeles born and raised. Yes, born and raised. What was what was like your early life before high school? Were were you always the comedic person, or did you kind of was it high school when you got that no, thing on the Mr. I, T show where you realized, hey, I could do this? No, I'd say like elementary school. Um, I used to be. I remember drawing sharks. <laughs> Shark portraits of people. Because it was Jaws time. You know, sharks okay. were very, very popular. I would draw, like, shark versions of people. Like, and that was, like, you know, my way of being popular. Um, I didn't start doing plays till uh, junior high. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did it just because I really enjoyed it. There was a book called The Phantom Tollbooth that I loved, and our school was doing uh, production of it. I was like, I love that book. I want to be part of that. Um, and then I began to do... I really enjoyed performing mm-hmm. you know so i was sort of hooked after that first play um but it wasn't really a popularity thing i mean i i think that's true for most people you know high school drama is not the hotbed of popularity <laughs> uh for most high schools i maybe it's different now mm. I, I wonder about that like in high school now is there you know like do people treat the people in plays like celebrities? I doubt it. I think it's weird with this newer generation because they're more accepting. Right. And this new generation of kids are so accepting of different people. And the drama club used to be that haven for kind of the outcasts right. who really wanted to develop their skills outside the realm of being taunted for it or whatever. Right. And what's interesting about that is the kids who are like the awkward kids, the kids who don't want to be in the spotlight, are the ones who are pushed in the spotlight. And... <laughs> and in the end, it actually pushes them past that. So when they get out of high school, they end up as the right. Tom Cruises and the, and the people who, if they ha- if their life had went another way, would probably be 
in a completely different career right. path. So you mean there's like less of a need for that now because there's less judgment? Like, oh, I'm the I'm the awkward misfit. The only place I can be myself is on stage. Now it's like, no, you can be yourself here. No, yeah, I think I think that people have honestly. It, it has expanded the, the scope of the drama clubs in high school. I think people are more accepting of the students in the drama clubs. Right. And I think it's leading to more and more people pursuing their aspirations and dreams. And with the whole YouTube generation, people who uh. join the drama club, they want to learn how to produce and they want to learn how to create <laughs> characters because they want to be YouTube famous. Oh, See, now that's that's what I'm afraid of. Like, that, you know, in high school there's going to be, like, cheerleaders, football players, you know, drama club... And then, like some equivalent of reality TV, <laughs> like yeah, we're we're we want to be famous for doing nothing. It's well, like, we got rich kids at Beverly Hills already, <laughs> but like and like in your own high school, it's like yeah, we're the reality club. We're just fab, you know. It's like wh- what do you do? Nothing, but we want people to film us. Oh, we, we already kind of have that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's everyone else. Yeah. So going to high school, though, how was it? I mean, you look at you look at how it is now, and you look at how people can just pick up a camera, put right. it on YouTube, and be seen by thousands to millions of people. How hard was it back then to kind of build a fan base? Because if you ever started doing stand-up and things right, like that, right. you needed people to show up, you needed people to sell tickets, and even for plays, you need to sell tickets. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, this and this is all going to sound like ancient anthropology. No, I remember um, playing with uh, my buddies in the neighborhood. We'd get our little Mego Star Wars action figures and film our own little animated Star Wars, like robot chicken types. You know, I remember making a want, uh, not a wonton, uh, a tauntaun out of um, Play-Doh. Okay. And putting a, a little Hoth Luke on there and, like, filming it. But, of course, to film it at that time, you had a camera that weighed about 50 pounds, mm-hmm. and it wasn't portable. It was 8mm, right? No, no, no. This was, this was a video camera. Oh, wow. So, so, but we had to run it into the VCR deck, <laughs> which was right there. And, and it didn't have, like, an eyepiece or anything. So you, you had the camera with a cable, like, three feet of cable to the deck, and then the deck with three feet of cable to a TV. Like a small black and white TV, so you could see what you were filming, and all of this, of course, just to put a firecracker in and blow the head off of a tauntaun. Oh yeah, you have to. My you dad, know. my dad wrapped GI Joes and burned them as the mummy. Exactly. You know, it's it's all. Do you, you still have those videos? I'm sure. No, oh God, no! I don't know where they are. You got to have them in a box somewhere. I, yeah, I have I have some audio tapes, but the video, I think, I don't know where they went because at the time, like the idea of saving things didn't yeah. exist. Well, that's the other thing. Um, moving ahead to like. When you're actually being a performer, you know, I remember uh, after going away to college and coming back to L.A. to pursue acting, I started taking classes at the Groundlings. And as you go through the Groundlings, um, you start writing and, you know, writing sketches and creating characters. And after a few classes, you realize, wow, I've written all these sketches. What do I do with it? And there was nothing to be done. You, The one thing you could do... And this is what we did. We would, you'd get a group of people from your class together. It's like, all right, everybody, we're all going to pitch in some money. We're going to rent a theater and we're going to put up our sketches in a theater. And like, it would cost you hundreds of dollars, you know, to put these things up and no one would come. Like you'd have whoever your best friends were come the first weekend and then, you know, you'd rent for what, three weeks or something and then you try to send out, you know, things to casting agents, and no one would ever come. Why would they? But it gets your chops up. 
that's really what, and that's the thing that I'm sort of afraid of these days. The fact that nobody, people call it paying dues mm-hmm. or, or whatever your, your Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. Like you can be doing it, the thing that you're trying to be immediately without the benefit of having failed somewhere off the radar for and you, years. You're not prepared for when you do fail. Exactly. Well, that's the thing. You, you, exactly. You have to, do it for a while before you get good at it. Um, who was I listening to? I was listening to an interview this morning with uh, Howard Stern and John C- John Cougar Mellencamp talking about like, okay. yeah, they were both saying like, yeah, when I started out, I sucked, which is the case with most people. I mean, there's a handful of people who have natural ability, but truly, even most of them suck at the beginning. They just suck a lot less than most people starting out. You know, so. well, I mean, I gotta I gotta quote one of your friends. He plays uh, the dog on Adventure Time, right? Uh, the first step to being good at something is sucking. <laughs> exactly. John DiMaggio. Have you seen um, John's uh, documentary? I have not. He's got a documentary out. I think it's out on Netflix now called I Know That Voice. And it's this really cool look at the voiceover world. Okay. I'll have yeah, to check that out. You must. Especially you must. if I'm going to be hosting this show. Yeah, <laughs> I really should know that. You make a list of people you, you want to have on it from the, just from there. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I have a list. It's, it's a mile wide. I mean, this industry is so... All over the place yeah. with with so many people that you don't even realize. You watch a cartoon, there is probably 150 people in that in like an hour long cartoon <laughs> from throughout that you've heard from every different places. As soon as we interviewed Todd Haberkorn, right. recognize his voice in every single thing mm-hmm. that I watch, and I'm like, that's Todd, that's Todd, and I don't even right. have to like look it up. I'm just like, that's Todd. Yeah. So it's amazing to see how people can change their intonation, change their range, mm-hmm. and really kind of bring out characters that you wouldn't expect. I mean, hearing Phil on a car commercial was really weird for me. <laughs> um, so you did get the voice of Woody on the Mr. T show when you were 16. Yeah, yeah. So, but you disappeared for eight years after that to do Purple Crayon in college, to found that in Yale, and, and kind of do the whole improv Olympics and groundlings, and you do, were very involved in that. Right. Was that why you decided to kind of take a step back from TV? Because you had all these things and you wanted to pay your dues is that why you took such a break or was it just because the work wasn't coming uh no i mean the mr t cartoon was a random happenstance really yeah i mean a friend of my mother's worked for nbc she knew i did plays and she said oh we're using real kids for this cartoon which i think at that time the mid 80s was unusual um but they were planning to use real children in this cartoon i don't know maybe mr t said i want real kids (laughs) i don't know um but she got me an audition for it, and I got the job. And it was not really show business. Mm-hmm. It, at least it didn't feel like it. Um, it was our summer job. You know, there was one girl, uh, Amy Linker, who was on the show, who was an actual actress. You know, uh, she was on the show Square Pegs uh, back in the eighties with uh, who else was on that? Tracy Nelson and yeah it's uh, it, it was a yeah. very very eighties artifact um but Amy was the only like real working actor of us. The rest of us were just kids doing voices and so when it was over, it wasn't like oh i'm gonna keep pursuing this plus I think it ended while I was in college of like that was just my summer job that's over now mm. um i don't and I almost don't really count it as part of my career um except that it got me uh, my union card with oh, the Screen wow. Actors Guild, which wound up later, many years later, being a real benefit. Um, but yeah, it was... And it's funny, because 
the fact that that very first professional job was a cartoon job. And people say, well, you've been doing cartoons. I'm like, well, sort of. Yeah. Not really. None of that carried over in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> by the time I came back to L.A. and by the time I actively thought about pursuing voiceover, like, I think pretty much everybody involved with that show was dead. Yeah, you can't, you can't take a break. <laughs> Once you're here, you're on the grind. Well, but it was also, I mean, that's, when I say that, I'm joking. Because actually, a lot of those people continued on. But... The fact of the matter was, I was a kid working on a cartoon. I wasn't networking. I, it wasn't a career choice. Mm. I didn't make friends with the producers or the engineers or the directors. I had no eye towards voiceover. You know, it was just I would go there for a few hours a week and do the thing for a couple of months each summer. Um, much, much, much later, um, when I actively started pursuing a voiceover career, and I realized, like, yeah, that could have helped had I, like, <laughs> you know, known anything or paid any attention whatsoever. I mean, I think you came out all right. Yeah, I think you turned out pretty well. No, you considering you don't understand. There were years. There's a, a buddy of mine who was living in New York at the time, and we would get on the phone and you know be talking about like you know we're both struggling trying to make a living. And it's like you know what you should do voiceover. No, you should do voiceover. Totally, totally. We would both be so good at voiceover. Okay, this year. We're going to try it, right? Okay, promise. Promise me. All right. Never For years. Oh, no. wow. Yeah. I mean, talking about Purple Crayon when you founded that, right. I wrote in my notes, I'm like, this sounds like a Steve Jobs movie. Like, just because, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm researching you and I'm, like, finding out all these things and just the, the whole, if I was going to read the book on Phil right. Lamar, I'd be like, oh, he did the Mr. Thing. That's foreshadowing. He's going to be a voice actor <laughs> soon. Oh, look at this. He's getting a group of people. He's getting the team together. He's founding Purple Crayon. Well, and then he's being one of the, one of the main members of, of the Groundlings in Chicago, which I do have to give a shout out to Jane Morris and Jeff Michalski. Really good friends of mine. They oh, told cool. me to say hello to you because they knew oh, I was coming in. Yeah. They're amazing. Yeah, they're such nice people. Shout out to you, Jane. Um, and you kind of, you were doing this for, for like eight years straight before going back in the industry. So what was it? Is that right? Yeah. You're- well, that's, that's funny because that did actually cause, uh, lead into my actual career. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to uh, Yale University, and my second year there, a buddy of mine, Eric Berg, is from Chicago and had spent the summer studying improv at Second City and Improv Olympic with uh, Del Close, who is like seen as like the, the guy, the guru. Um, and he came back to us with this concept that he learned from Del of a long form improv called the Herald. And he got together a bunch of actors that he had done plays with or knew from school or whatever, and said, "Hey guys, would you be interested in putting together a team?" To do this, I'm like, well, all right, sure. What do we? What is it? What do we do? And we had no idea what we were doing. We just followed Eric, and it was basically a conceptual exercise. I'm going to describe a theater form to you, and you are going to teach yourselves to do it. Literally, very he sat, abstract. He, he sat down with a, a sheet of paper and drew like. Three concentric sources. Like, a herald starts with a single idea from the uh, audience, and then you start with three scenes, and the three scenes, you know, interconnect. I I guess you could have only done that at, you know, an Ivy League school or something. But we had fun. We would get together and just workshop, you know, and 
play with each other and figure out, you know, using these these basic improv principles that we we learned from Eric that he had just learned from, you know, that summer. Um, and it was a really amazing experience. And you're sort of building something from scratch. Um, we wound up, the whole team, going to Chicago, um, first for a competition, you know, to compete against other Herald teams, and later for a summer just to study with Dell and also to take classes at Second City and live in Chicago. And, yeah, that, I think, was the single most formative um, experience of, of my life because the improv I found to be just like a life philosophy. Say yes and build on that. Okay. I mean, that that's it in a nutshell. And it's like an amazing way to approach life. It kind of like changed your way of thinking about things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it also led into my career because once I came home to L.A., I was trying to be an actor. And again, I didn't see the improv as a career choice. It was just what I loved to do. So... I was going out trying to get agents and go on auditions and do all of the stuff they told me you were supposed to do. But then I started taking classes at the Groundlings on my own dime, on my own time, just because I needed to do improv. It was your it was your center. Like you can't yeah. be in this. It's like if I could get the money together, it's like oh good, I can take a I can take a, an improv class. Um, but then I wound up getting work because while of I was a student at the Groundlings. Um, and actually, the, the funny thing is, uh, I would be going out for TV shows because after a couple of years, I finally got an agent and started trying to, you know, get a foot in the door through traditional means. Um, but then every once in a while, someone would call the Groundlings, you know, it's like, hey, do you have um, – we're looking for a funny young comic actor, you know. Uh, uh, it's like, oh, great, we got tons of those. Uh, a black one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Um, and they would go down the list and down the list and down the list. Nobody in the main company. Nobody in the Sunday company. And like, yes, we have one. Because, <laughs> of course, when casting people call, you don't want to tell them no because yeah. they'll never call again. So, yeah, I think I was in my second level Groundlings class and I started getting auditions because I was the only black person there. I mean, that's that's the thing, though. <laughs> that's the right place at the right time. Right. And once you're, once you're there, you're, you're a commodity. Exactly, and exactly. once you're needed, you're needed, and that's 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 kind of amazing because I noticed that you were on you were Bob Brown on the George Carlin show, right. and when anyone sees George Carlin, they're just like comedy greatness. Yeah. So, how did you actually get involved? Was that through the Groundlings? How did you get involved with that show? No, that was uh, God. What year was that? I'm not exactly sure, but was that the early '90s, late '90s? Um, but. No, I got that through very traditional, you know, I got an agent who sent me out on sitcoms, and um, that was one of the ones, you know, I started doing, I think I'd done a bunch of ABC shows, some CBS shows, um, Murphy Brown, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, mm -hmm. Wings. Those um, small guest star roles. In yeah, the, like yeah. And... I think this was like, you know, one of the pilot seasons. Like, okay, there's this uh, part on this new Fox pilot. And like, great. And it's like, I think it wound up just being a guest star, but it was a recurring guest star. And it was with George. It was a pretty thankless role, you know, because they were trying to figure out what the show was. We know it's about George, but we're probably going to need other people. <laughs> so, 
And it, and it was hilarious because there was this sort of like, okay, there's the bar where George hangs out. He drives a cab, so he doesn't really have, like, work life. But then he's got his apartment, and you're one of the guys that hangs out on George's stoop. Because we sort of figured George will probably, like, hang out on the stoop. Like, okay. Eventually they realize, George doesn't hang out on the stoop that much. (laughs) And so I think after, like, six episodes, well, no, after two or three, Bob started coming to the bar more. Because, you know, (laughs) they didn't want to film the stoop. Um and then eventually he's like, why is this guy here? And eventually I was gone. I think I, I lasted two-thirds of the first season or something. But it was amazing. I got to um, hang out with people who I'm still friends with today. You know, Tony Stark, Chris Rich. Um, uh, I'm still friends with George's daughter uh, from there. Um, I get to meet Alex Rocco. And actually, we did an, uh, an episode with Evander Holyfield. That's of all people. out there, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> And Michael Buffer, although I wound up with Buffer again on Mad TV. So that must have been 90... It was before Mad, right? Well, you, yeah, you it, was, it was before Mad. Yeah. I think... Uh, so it must have been 92 92 or, or 93. Yeah, halfway through 92 probably. Right. Um, yeah, so... It, and meeting George was an incredible experience. Because, you know, I'd grown up listening to his stuff. So he was up there to, like, in your personal... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful wino. Hey, it's the hippie dippie weatherman. You know, all that stuff. I, I was down with it. And he was amazing. You know, the show wasn't great, you know. But that wasn't for lack of trying on his part. I mean, he would be there and, you know, do rehearsing with the rest of us and then afterwards go in with the writers and try to help them. Um, I remember one episode we were just hanging out and he started talking about uh, one of a guy that was one of his influences, a guy named Lord Buckley, okay. who was this spoken word artist in the 50s before there was even the term spoken word artist. And... And it's funny, because if you listen to him, you definitely hear the influence on George. He was this fellow who had this sort of continental British thing. That was his voice, and the scratchy, jazzy type of voice. But he would do hipster language versions of classical pieces. Like uh, the, uh, the, uh, the monologue from Julius Caesar, you know, Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Yeah. He did, hipsters, flipsters, and knock down daddies. Knock me your lobes. So he's, he, I actually haven't, I mean, I feel bad saying this, but I haven't heard of him. No, nobody had. every time you say something like that, I can reference when somebody else has referenced that. Yeah. Well, and that was the thing. I had never heard of him either. And George's like, what? You never heard of George Buckley? That's crazy. You got to hear about this guy. The next morning, like after he had, you know, been there till 11 working on the script and whatever and then driven home to the Palisades he handed me a cassette tape I'm like what's this he's like I went through my records last night and I found one of my Lord Buckley albums and I put it down for you man you gotta listen to this stuff like he went and made a mixtape for me that (laughs) night that's romance right there (laughs) and and I mean yeah I still I still have it to this day and it just showed me it's like wow you can be a legend. I mean, he'd already, you know, had his work before the Supreme Court at this point and still be nice, you know? You don't have to be a schmuck just or you don't have to push people away just because you reach a level of recognition. Yeah. You know. That's good to know. I mean, cuz there's so many what's interesting about my newer generation, like anyone who's born after I was, right. everyone knows who George Carlin is. Everyone right. loves his stand-up because they see it on YouTube because YouTube has spread the word of Carlin. Right. I mean, seven words you can't say on TV, like, <laughs> things like that. But nobody's actually 
nobody really actively researches stories on him. Nobody actually looks right. up who he was as a man. So it's 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 great to hear that, and it's great to kind of spread who these people were, because right. in 50 to 100 years, you never know where the name's going to be and what stories are going to stick. Yeah. So you have actors now that one person says, oh, they were a dick one day, right? and then 10 people say they're amazing, but if the dick story sticks... The dick story sticks. Yeah, and that's exactly. Coining a phrase, right? Exactly. <laughs> Write that up. I know. I, I'm going to get that. The dick uh... story sticks. <laughs> exactly. Um, was what was like the moment in your career where you just kind of, you just kind of took a step back, third person to your life, and was like, things are just kind of starting to happen now, and it's just kind of moving forward. Hmm. Um. I don't know. Uh must have been right before the end of Mad TV. Um, and it wasn't so much that, uh, you know, things are starting to happen. I've made it as much as it was. Where am I? Where am I going next? Because um, I think at that point we'd been four years. In this, this, yeah, before it was probably starting the fifth year. Um, and it was it was hard. Um, I mean, doing an hour of sketch is hard. Yeah. Period. Um, and the work environment there made it even harder than I think it needed to be. Um, so it was like, okay, what am I doing here? And I would watch people on my show, people on SNL and see what, you know, and I, and I basically decided like sketch is not what's going to launch me. Okay. This is not because I see the people who are using this as a springboard and I don't do what they do. Okay, you know? so you were looking at the careers of like Adam Sandler, and exactly. The careers of like San- Will Sandler was, a, Sandler was a, a, a particular example. It's like, like I'm trying to like disappear into characters. He's playing the same character over and over again, and then someone offers him a million dollars to play that character in a movie. Like, so he branded himself. That yeah, well it was funny because that was it was before that term was applied to that concept, mm-hmm. um, and, it, and as an actor, it just seemed like he's just doing the same character with different hats, um, but. He was very funny. He was very committed. He was very ambitious. And he kept moving up. And I'm like, huh, I don't think that's what I do. I think I need to go a different route. Um, so, and because you, know, you sort of face with one of those, you know, quandaries at that time. Like, okay, my contract's almost up. Am I Shelley Long or Kelsey Grammer? You know, like, are you trying to get out here to go to the next thing? Or are you happy where you are? Yeah, which will probably fail. Or do you ride your horse till it drops? I mean, Kelsey Graham's like, I'm going to play this character for 25 years, as long as they're willing to pay me. You know, I'm like, and God bless him. He probably has a beautiful house, maybe a jet, who knows, you know. And he's continued on his career since then. Yeah. And that's that's the thing you sort of forget well, in Kelsey Grammer's case, it was also kind of a network loyalty thing. I mean, right. they were treating him well. They were like Frasier was a great show. They gave it a prime time spot. Right. And throughout the entire series, they never once decided to screw him over. And I think I think when you have people who you want to be loyal to, I think that will push you to stay with them longer. Yeah. In the case of I don't know if there's a show that's holding you back from other things, it's just you're more likely to want to. You don't think that they're going to be be there for you right. when when your run is over with the show, right? Well, and it's also um, you know trying to weed out the truth from. Uh, but that's the thing when you're dealing with things that haven't happened yet. What is true? Because mm-hmm. I guarantee you, anybody who is on a show 
has an agent or somebody who wants to be their agent telling them, it's like, you sh- you're so much bigger. You're so much bigger Grass than this. Greener. You're so much better than this. We got to get you out of the first thing I'm going to, if I sign you, first thing I'm going to do is get you out of this contract and we'll get you into one where you're making 10 times as much and doing such much better work. You know, there's always someone blowing smoke up your ass and you have to decide whether to listen to them or not. I mean, for me, it was, you know, we were coming to the end of the contract. It was a difficult environment. I knew I didn't want to stay there. Um, and also, it was Fox Late Night, which is like ghetto TV. <laughs> so it wasn't like, the money's so good, I don't know if I can give this up. But it was um, stable, and you are making a paycheck. Right. I mean, and I don't know. I never even had the conversation with them about whether they'd want me back. But from what I saw later, I'm sure it would have been some horrible lowball offer. Um, but, uh, yeah, I decided, well, you know, I'm about to get married, about to buy a house. Um, so this is probably the last time I'm going to be able to quit a job. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So might as well do it now and get it out of my system. Before before you're too... Before you, you have require. too many obligations. Yeah, and then, then they have you in their back pocket because they know they have exactly. you. So with Mad TV, mm-hmm. though, um, you were the first parody of Michael Jackson. No. Uh, well, no. no. Tommy Davidson... Oh, did, did Tommy Davidson do it for on In Living Color? But just like one specific joke. Okay. Um, they didn't really recur it as a character. Um, yeah, and I think I got in there just at the right time. Because um, basically by the time I left TV, Michael had transcended parody. He got to a point where it's just like, like any sketch you would pitch, it's like, nope, look at the Inquirer. What the real story is actually much crazier and more insane, you know? <laughs> Like, it's like, oh, he's on trial for that. Oh, God, he did what to his face? Like, oh, God. You Where know? did he go? Yeah. He's trying to grow a mustache under his foundation? Why are you <laughs> doing that? Uh, you know. So, yeah, we had we had fun. It was a lot of makeup. Um, but it was a lot of characters, too. And when yeah. you when you look at your career now and where you are today, the number of characters, the number of voices, the number of things you have to get into the mindset for, um, it really seems like... Mad TV probably helped you in that regard that you had to do all of these characters and it had to be like that. Right. Do you think, do you think having to be pushed through the, the ropes of, hey, today you're Sammy Davis, today you're Martin Lawrence, hey, you're gonna be, uh, Diddy today, okay, you're Rick James, maybe you're Don King today. Like, right. Do you think having to get those voices down and build those characters kind of helped with your voiceover career? Um, maybe. I mean, I'd always been sort of an accent impression person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like early in high school, I you know got a part. I beat out a bunch of older kids to play play Humphrey Bogart and play it against Sham. You know, I I always had an ear for that sort of stuff. Um, and Mad was nice because there were times when you had to do an impression. You know, whether you thought you could do it or not. It's like, well, we've got the sketch. We think it's really funny. I remember there was one time we were shooting, and they had a when Harry met Sally parody. And we were out of white guys. Um, so they're like, well, okay, Dave's already doing that. Uh, Brian can't do impressions. Uh, Phil, can you do Billy Crystal? I'm like, I don't know, maybe. And I went and looked at the tape. I'm like, um, yeah, I, I think I can pretty much uh, handle this. Yeah. And I wound up like basically doing white face. You know, it's like men and women can never be friends. The sex part always gets in the way, you know. <laughs> Um, 
But yeah, it was it was definitely a challenge. I still to this day don't think I can do Martin Lawrence, which is a bummer. Um, although there's not much call for it anymore. <laughs> but I'm working on my I'm working on my Kevin Hart impression. Oh, you got to get that um, down for. Well, it's funny because I think my best impression is Chris Rock, but he was really hard to parody. Really? Yeah, because he was too good. <laughs> you know, it's like I was always praying that Chris Rock would go crazy and start shooting up Ventura, but he never did. He, he didn't. We actually had his brother in here for our other Tony? network, Black Hollywood Live. Yeah, Tony. Oh, okay. Super nice guy. Super funny. And it's, like, he, it, it's a really interesting interview. If you guys check that out, Black Hollywood Live, stand-up, sit-down. We actually interview stand-up comedians oh, on that so network. Oh, that's so funny. So it's great. Um, but, you know, you're doing all these voices. Um, totally lost my train of thought, you know, because that <laughs> happens sometimes. <laughs> but, okay. So let me just let me just rebound myself here. Well, because you had asked me about the the voiceover stuff, whether the the char- doing the characters, and I think definitely the Groundlings multiple you know character based writing, you know, because the Groundlings is very much about characters. You know, you look at the people who've come out of there: Lisa Kudrow, Paul Rubens. It, there's a lot of character based comedy, mm-hmm. um, and that definitely lends itself towards sketch, and it lends itself towards. Um, Voiceover. I mean, voiceover. I think is definitely faster and more off the cuff than sketch. Because mm-hmm. sketch, you've got to come up with a concept, you know, along with a character. Uh, it's got to have the point of view. Um, in voiceover, the writers come up with the point of view, and you just have to, you know, figure out where in your throat you might place it. Um, although I, my friend D. Bradley Baker. Um, who actually has put up a website because we get so many people saying, it's like, hey, I want to be a voice actor. How do I get started? And like, I don't know. I only know how I get started. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> there you go. Um, but D got asked so much, he put up a website called IWantToBeAVoiceActor.com, which is really an amazing resource. It has, like, links to stuff, and it also has, like, a page that is a list of questions that one should ask oneself before you start pursuing voiceover or really any sort of creative you know endeavor um but he always says that you're like an old vaudeville performer with a trunk full of tricks and you pull a voice out of there and you pull him like and when i heard him say that i was like oh my god that that would make it so much easier i've been sitting here trying to come up with a new voice every time which in the first three years was pretty easy but then it's like okay i did that voice before and this is because sometimes the characters aren't that different i mean and I, I hate to say it, but like video games especially, they lean towards s- specific signature sounds. Like, all of the heroes sound like this. You know, the leading character, the player character. Get out. We've got to go. Come on. You know. Was that, was that Redis or was that Van? That, that was, I, I never do those guys. Oh, they, you never they, do those. They always okay. hire big white guys to do that. Um, no, I always do the secondary character who sounds like this. <laughs> You know, and I tr- I try to you know play the writing and figure out a different angle. I mean, you know, you know, you've got Green Lantern, who's you know a, v- a very you know broad-shouldered kind of voice, but then in uh, in Jack and Daxter, I did a character named Sig, who's similar, but he's got a little more energy. It's like, come on, Jerry's, don't be afraid. We're gonna bag up some metalheads. Um, but then you start winding, you know, wind up with a character from Mercenaries, you know, who's like they want, they want this voice, you know, they want a big black dude who sounds like he can kick ass and take names. There you go, you know, and I try to keep them distinct, but a lot of times they wind up in the same place. I mean, 
what did I do recently? Well, the great thing is sometimes you get to bring them back. Like uh, for the Injustice game, mm-hmm. um, I got to bring you know John Stewart back and do this specific voice because this this to me is a little bit different than this one. You know, there's there's a similarity, but the, the badass video game black dude is this guy. Well, I like that so much because you're right. You're it's pretty much the same voice, mm-hmm. but just changing the energy and the intention behind the character can create a whole new character. And that's actually the the funny thing because you know a lot of times we'll be in panels at a convention or something, and people will ask about voice acting, and it's not just me. I've heard other people say it too. It's like, well, in the phrase. Voice acting, voice comes first, but in reality, acting comes first. You know, because you can do a funny voice, but if you can't get what the writer is trying to communicate in the writing across, the only way to do that is acting, you know. Um, then you're just making a funny voice, and they're going to have to replace you later. I don't know why, but in my mind, I'm thinking this is similar to the Adam Sandler thing, where mm-hmm. you can do ten different voices, right. but if you stick with the one and just have that be your brand that moves out, Right. From that, as well, it's similar. And it's funny, because in VO, like a lot of my friends who are really big in commercial voiceover mm-hmm. have that. They have a signature read. You know, or like uh, you know the old uh, Don LaFontaine, in a world. Yeah. Like, that was the, the very definition of a signature read. He had a thing that he did. And know? it works. Yeah. People yeah. want it for every movie. Exactly. Until they don't. Until they don't. And then you have... Then you need something else. Rob Schneider is a stapler. Like, that right. kind of thing going yeah. on. Um, so after Mad TV, I do... Before we get into, like, the video games and just... Uh, you know what? We can just cover the video games right here just because I have one comment on that. <laughs> I will say that you're probably the... Gantheck and Knights of the Old Republic. Ha! <laughs> Such a small role. Uh-huh. But you're the first person in a game that I completely betrayed and felt bad about. <laughs> I gotta oh, so throw that funny. out there. That is probably, honestly though, Knights of the Old Republic, I don't know if you still get fans who talk to you about that, but that is probably one of the best games I've ever played in my life. Interesting. I, I very rarely have people uh, mention Knights of the Old Republic to me. And I'm not sure why. Um, I, I think maybe it's because Star Wars people will be more likely to mention Clone Wars, or what? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I mean... The work they put into that, it was amazing. I mean, it was the first one of its kind, really, for that much voice undertaking. And it's like, when I look at voice actors that I'm booking for the voice of, I'm like... Almost all of us are in that, aren't we? Yeah, Yeah. because it's just, you've grown with with that franchise, and everyone who was in that kind of became the video game voices for the next 10 years. It's, well, the next 10 years and onward. Right. I mean, because Bioware has stuck with a lot of the same people throughout the years. That's great. So it's, it's kind of amazing. I want to talk about Pulp Fiction really quickly. Mm-hmm. Twenty year anniversary. Yeah, this year. Did you guys do anything? Like, did the cast <laughs> the cast ever like get together and decide to shoot Marvin again? Or like <laughs> that's where we're gonna blow out a head. <sighs> um, no, no. I'm trying to think. Have I seen anybody from the movie? Uh, I ran into Burr Steers, um, more, better known as Flock of Seagulls. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, I don't think we realized that it was the, the 20th anniversary. Is it amazing how, like, you look back and you're like, that's 20 years? The most amazing thing about it is how well it the movie holds up. Okay. Um, although I think somebody did tweet or Facebook a picture. Um, apparently there's a video store in Portland, perhaps the last video store, that has uh, a bust of me. The, the bust that they used for the shot of... Uh, yeah. Marvin's brain's getting blown out. 
that is not actually in the movie. Um, but yeah, somebody showed me that and it's really creepy looking. Um, it's like, put a shirt on it. Um, but yeah, it's the, the other interesting thing about it is talking to people your age about it and knowing that you can't quite appreciate it the same way as somebody in their forties can, because anybody who was watching movies before Pulp Fiction and then saw Pulp Fiction, they were like, "Whoa!" Exactly. It was like it was like uh, you know watching the Great Train Robbery for the first time. It's like I can hear the movie. Ah! You know, it changed the way entertainment was done from that point forward. I mean, it kind of made violence okay. Well, but see, not, no, the, not like not like in those terms. I don't see, mean there, it, there had always been violence. I mean, true romance was very violent. But okay. true, rom- true romance was a much more traditional narrative. Okay. Than Pulp Fiction. And and the thing is, the movies that were made after Pulp Fiction and the movies that were made before them have a qualitative difference. You know, what you're used to seeing, it's like if you see a movie that has, you know, a non-chronological storyline. Mm-hmm. You go, yeah. Before 94? No! Wow. That was like, should this have subtitles? Is this European? American movies aren't like this. You can't, you can't mess with the, the chronology. And it actually bummed a lot of people out. Like, this movie's confusing me! You know? Um, but since then, and yeah, the idea of, like, crime stories. I mean, after Quentin did Pulp Fiction, there was just, like, a spate of, like, you know, like, oh, I can make a different kind of crime movie. And they made all these different kind of crime movies because this different crime kind of crime movie. You know, uh, usual, usual Suspects would not have been made. It might have been written, but it wouldn't have been made without Pulp Fiction. Did you guys realize what you were creating when you were on set, when you guys were filming this? Like, did Quentin kind of... Because I know he talks a lot, but, like... I would I would probably just listen to him for hours because <laughs> I feel like that guy knows so much that yeah. you just want to absorb it all. D- did he ever talk to you guys about his intention for this movie and how it would change things? Because I feel like he's a big picture kind of guy. I feel like he understood. And I, I feel like he probably had fears of how it would be recepted. Um, I don't know. I, I th- my point of view on it was we all knew it was amazing. I mean... How else do you get Bruce Willis, Uma Thurman, Christopher Walken, John Travolta, Sam Jackson, all for under $8 million? <laughs> Even in 94. Yeah. You know, or 93. Um, everybody knew. I mean, the script was... You can find the original script, and it'll still blow you away. Yeah. it's For an actor, it was like a combination of catnip and chocolate. It was just amazing. You're like, oh, my God, I just want to play all of these parts. Because it just jumps off the page into your brain. Um, I don't. I didn't personally didn't think it would be successful. I figured it would probably do about what Reservoir Dogs did. Okay. You know? Which was fine. And it's and still it was, like a... It's a still a classic movie nowadays, but right. nowhere near the... But the thing is, I mean, yeah, because so, like, for $8 million, they made upwards of $100 million. And like, I still make like percentage wise, the profit on that is kind of <laughs> crazy, you know. Like try and try that with your bloody transformers. <laughs> God, it's like well, we spent two hundred million dollars. Will we make six one point six billion? Probably not. Um, but let's put <clears throat> Megan Fox in it and hope for the best. Ha! 
Ninja Turtles. I'm so glad those kids, are, those crazy kids, Michael and Megan, are back together, aren't you? Uh, uh, did you see the new Ninja Turtles? I did. I well, it did better than I expected. Was it better than you expect? I feel like, as somebody who grew up with the Ninja Turtles, mm-hmm. I hated it. Okay, but I feel like people who are being introduced to it as something new, as opposed to they already know the characters. Right. They might be less, um, what's the word, less criticism of it. Yeah. Like, they might yeah. have a, less criticism of the movie. Right. Um, we did have Noah Fisher in the studio to talk about it. And he was Michelangelo, which, as the only character in the movie they really build upon, really give a personality to. Right. I was really impressed. Like, I, the voice acting was spot on. Oh, good. Everything with the movie, in that respect, the acting was amazing. I just think... I think Hollywood pushes out movies way too fast now. I think that they don't take enough time building a script that's going to really last because by the time they finish filming, they're already on to the next one. They're not really caring about the spirit in the movie anymore. And if all you care about is uh, overseas sales, the nuances of the script don't really matter. Yeah. It's like, well, if I I do this really cool character, he's going to be revoiced for China anyway. Who cares? Yeah, and you know what? That's That's kind of the downside to Hollywood, but it's kind of... It's kind of good in a way. Is because, it? And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. And what I mean by good in a way, I mean, we're not getting these huge cinematic movies in the theaters that you're just blown away by. Right. But as things move more towards internet and as things move more towards word of mouth spread through social media, mm-hmm. Netflix has made it so people can see indie movies that are amazing and the indie movies blow up. And we're seeing a whole new realm of filmmakers who, while they're not part of these $300 million films, they're not tainted by the whole Hollywood mindset of money over quality. So we have people who are out in Michigan, people who are out in Florida, who are just kind of gathering up the funds through GoFundMe or through through, um, Kickstarter and making something that they can put on the internet and send it out to millions of people. Right. Well, but you realize that the explosion in your blowing up is a lot smaller explosion than it used to be. Yeah. Like, if Pulp Fiction was on the internet, it wouldn't make $100 million. Oh, no, it wouldn't. Because, like, well, I pay net- Netflix $9 a month. Well, the internet's killing the movie industry. Yeah. And well, the movie the movie industry is killing the movie industry. Yes, that's very true as well. Um, as, and the internet ain't helping, you know. But, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. I love... There, there are so many movies. If you just look through Netflix, and it's hard. It, you kind of have to dig. You have to like look oh, yeah. through the website as opposed to like on your Xbox or something because <laughs> it usually only has the playlist unless right, you search. Right. Oh, that's true. But if you just look through the website, you can find a lot of indie films. And I even think like when I look at what my favorite movie on Netflix is, it's still Cashback. Cashback is an indie film right. about a kid who works in a supermarket and finds out that he can stop time by just not looking at the clock and being so bored that time stops. Oh. And it's it's not even that it's just so mind-blowing. It's just you're watching the movie, and you can tell that the crew cares about the movie. You can tell the actor is really invested in it. Right. You can tell that it's a movie that a writer spent countless hours perfecting before filming. And like I don't, Ninja Turtles. Like, no. like Ninja Turtles. That's, that's what I love about cinema, and that's what I love about movies. So when you can find that in today's age where people don't really appreciate it, mm-hmm. I feel like when I'm when I'm 35, when I'm 40... These are the filmmakers of tomorrow in the new industry, the new hand, age you're gonna, industry. You're call it up on your phone and hand it to your kid. Look at this. No, look at this. Like, look back. Like, and that's what I'm excited for. I know we kind of stepped off voice over here for a second, it's but fine. it's it's great to talk cinema because I didn't realize that about Pulp Fiction because I didn't have that experience. You're right, absolutely right. right. I don't. 
I can watch movies from before it and I can watch movies from after, but right. my mind does not consider it from a time age perspective. Yeah. Well, it's funny because there's the other thing. Did you see uh, the, the the other thing of God? I'm trying to remember when this happened. Basically, when editing went from uh, analog to digital. It oh, cha- it sped things up. It changed the yeah. It's it changed the way we watched stuff. That's the the MTV cut. Okay. You know, uh, so I guess that was probably sometime in the 80s. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, before you used to have to, like, cut a piece of film and glue it back together every time you made an edit. So they're like, you know what, let's let the scene run. (laughs) Now it's like, I just press a button. It's like, let's cut some more. Let's cut that way and that way and that way. And then we all got used to that. Now, if you do you ever watch movies from the 70s? Um, I, and like, not as often as I should. How slow they are. Like... I remember, I think it was Shaft. I'm watching Shaft, like 71 or something. Shaft takes a phone call in his detective agency. All right, I'll be right there. Hangs up the phone. Grabs his coat off the rack. Puts his coat on. They give the scene time to breathe. Walks out the door. Comes down the stairs and then walks (laughs) down the street. Then gets in his car. Like, (laughs) there's so much time. They don't want to cut. Right. Nowadays, it would have been like, I'll be right there. Cut to him in the car, pulling up. But you know, at the same time, I feel like people try to bring that old style back, and then we get great cinematic TV shows like Breaking Bad, right. where it is the it's the definition of the slow drama, where the slow build, you have the time, and you let the characters breathe, and you right. let the moment sit, and when it sits on your mind, it lets the viewer think. Right. Cinema nowadays in the theaters is all about not giving you time to think, because if you think, you're going to end up hating the movie. <laughs> I mean, no offense to right. modern day cinema, but yeah, teenage <laughs> mutant. Right. Um, sorry, that's hilarious. <laughs> I feel like we're crapping on that movie way more than we. You know what? Should. He has jets and models. He's he's fine. He'll be all right. He's okay. He'll be okay. All right. So one thing I I gotta ask, just like give me one cool story from set for Pulp Fiction. Like one thing where you just look back and that was hilarious. Um, it's twenty years, man. You got to give it to the fans. God, what was, uh, oh, I remember, um, <clears throat> back to this, the bus that's in, um, Portland. Okay. I remember the first time, uh, I was hanging out on set, you know, between scenes, and Greg Nicotero, who's now wow. producer, um, Walking Dead. On The Walking Dead, uh, was the effects guy, and he had done the, the face cast of me. And he showed up with the bust, and they had, this bus wearing the same little polo shirt I was wearing and like they like built hair on it and everything and they wanted to do a test for Quentin and I remember them bringing in my <laughs> soon to be dead body and setting it up on a chair with like a, a great big like uh, whiteboard behind it and the way it was rigged is there was a big hole in the back of the head like so you shoot it from the front you can't see this mm-hmm. and they filled that with brain goop and then there was a co2 canister yeah yeah, attached to it and you go and And so they like set the thing up put the board behind it went quentin looked at it he goes yeah more brains (laughs) and they said all right and you're standing there like (laughs) i know (laughs) well that was that was the other weird thing the first day on the set is you know, because you're meeting the crew and you're meeting everybody, and like, hey, how are you? I'm Phil, and it's like, and usually it's like, oh, hi, how are you? But every person on the crew looked at me weird, and it was that weird look, like, hi, 
And I realized, or I talked to somebody afterwards, like, yeah, about two weeks ago, we shot um, the the scene with Harvey <laughs> Keitel. So we've met you because there was a dummy of my dead body that they'd been carting around on set for weeks before I got there. So basically, whenever I, when I showed up on set alive, they felt like they were meeting a ghost. That's kind of funny, though. Yeah, it was funny. I mean, that's I don't think anyone else really gets that experience. <laughs> no. It's like, hi, nice to meet you. All right, so I want to I want to dive into the voice characters. I've been kind of holding it off, but we we can it's go time. a little longer. It's, it's fun. Time. It's it's time for the voice characters. All right, so the first one I want to get into Green Lantern. Oh yes, beefy black male role model voice. Right, and it's Dennis Haysbert. Yeah. Do you it, know Dennis Haysbert from I don't. Allstate commercials? Yeah. The president I mean, on 24? I didn't know his you're name. In, you're in good hands with Allstate. Is that who you model the voice after? He, he auditioned before me. And you got him? You got it with his voice? I, I guess I do a better Dennis Haysbert than Dennis Haysbert. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that guy comes out of the room and I'm like, dude, you are the guy. You look, he looks like Jon Stewart. He's like, this tall. He's, that voice is just like, Mrrr. and I'm like, well, there's nothing else to do. But him. Yeah. So I just went in there and did John Stewart, you know. I think I, I added a little bit of, because uh, my dad has this real smoky tone to his voice. So, you know, I was doing doing the, the Dennis, but then I also added a little bit of uh, what I call smoke to it. Personality, though, with the, with well, the southern. Well, what it is, is yeah. it just, it gives him just a little bit uh, of a seasoning, you know. So it's not just depth. It's also an attitude, you know. Well, you're right because if you if you listen to like the Allstate commercials, it's like very. Well, well yeah, there's there's he's nothing. But going he's on. amazing. He's supposed to. Yeah, he's just supposed to. You know. Yeah. So with the DC world right now, it's it's really trying to compete with Marvel in the movie film space. Marvel is kind of. <laughs> yeah, well, ripping it a new I don't know one. Why they made that White Green Lantern movie. Any, <laughs> anybody under twenty five had no idea who that guy was. No, sir. <laughs> why but, is Green Lantern white now? I mean, why is Green? Why is Deadpool Green Lantern? But uh, well, that 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 makes sense. Ryan is a, Ryan Reynolds is a really funny, talented guy. Yeah, Green Lantern is not a funny character. He's a serious character, and he's, he's so much justice. He's so much better suited for Deadpool, providing they don't sew his mouth shut. What is that? I don't know. I think everyone across the country who like, knew who Deadpool was, right? Like, what it's the like, hell? Rah! It's like. We didn't like the lines. I don't think we're going to break the third wall in this movie. It's not a good idea. <laughs> that would just draw fans out. They wouldn't know what's going on. I'm, I'm sure there's like, well, let's just cut him. Just, um, <laughs> but yeah, it. But what they are excelling at mm-hmm. is DC has consistently beat Marvel out with the cartoon industry on yes. Saturday morning cartoons, the- on kids, Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, and the DCAU is quality wise, although. Marvel has made some big leaps in the last few years. Oh, with Avengers and everything like that. They yeah. they have been really trying, and they have Disney on their side now. Right. So that's probably where it really lies, because they have the animation studios to really pump those out. Yeah. And, I mean, it's funny, because I think, I don't know if the Disney angle is making them skew younger, mm-hmm. you know, whereas the DC animated stuff has tended to skew older. Well, when know? I watched Justice League, I was a yeah. teenager, and I was like, this is freaking awesome yeah i mean complex storylines emotionals i mean is uh sexual innuendo with hot girl yeah yeah no we we ended up having uh a love triangle where the world was at stake 
because <laughs> her ex-boyfriend was trying to take over the planet. There you go. You know, I mean, that's the kind of writing that you, if you get even one episode of that in an animated show, you have to count yourself so, so fortunate. But they did it for seasons, you know? Those guys were, re- you know, Stan Berkowitz and Dwayne McDuffie it were just, you know, all those guys were, you know, amazing. And a lot of them, I think, are, you know, go back and forth. They work on the Marvel stuff, too. And I think they're definitely, like, that's become the template now, mm-hmm. you know, for long-term, you know, story arcs. It's not just a single episode, you know. People are trying to tie things in. You know, we did that on Avengers um, uh, and, the, I think, in the new shows. Uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, I think, is a little more poppy and, and young. Um, but still, like... People are giving the audience the benefit of the doubt and like, okay, we're not going to assume they're not watching everything else. We're going to tell a fully realized story. And you're going to have inside jokes and you're going to have things that people can relate to as opposed to just watching one episode. Right. And which is great because they started that with Batman. And honestly, the original Batman, like the Batman cartoon with the blue and black suit, Mm -hmm. uh, amazing. Yeah. Like, I can go back now. I'm 24. I can go back and watch that. And I'm just thoroughly entertained. It's a great series, great writing. And what kills me is, I know this is kind of off topic, but Muggsy is my favorite villain of all time. (laughs) Really? Favorite one. I just, I don't know why. I love the concept of the nerdy... Which one is Muggsy? The puppet. The ventriloquist? The ventriloquist. Was it Bugsy Bugsy or... Wait, wait, because yeah, because the the ventriloquist is the, is the guy with the glasses, and then he's got a puppet, and the puppet is the one with the the cigar in the yeah, hat. Yeah, the cigar right? in the hat. What's the puppet's name? I thought I thought it was Bugsy or Muggsy or something because they're okay. playing off the old gangster. Yeah. If I get the name wrong, it's probably because I haven't seen it so long. But that, yeah. but that villain, right? I always thought that would make such an amazing cinematic in a movie nowadays. I wonder who did that character. I don't have the it written down. I'm gonna look it up later. Um, <laughs> But it was such a great character because the ventriloquist yeah. didn't want to do it. The pu- the puppet was the one. It was like it's honestly like the the DC version of Mister Garrison and Mister Hat. Right. Well, <laughs> that's the funny thing is that like Batman as not just a character but as a world, the Batman world is, and I think it's the reason it's the one that's worked for DC is that it's so rich. Everybody is insane, and most of them are based on animals. I mean, so, like, your your aesthetics are interesting, because mm-hmm. you've got Batman, Catwoman, you know, like, Penguin, you know, the, all of these things going on. And then, from a writing standpoint, everyone's crazy. <laughs> a guy know, dresses up as a bat, they're all, fighting you know, people. Everybody in, in the Batman world is insane, from Batman on. Except for, I guess, Dick Grayson. Okay. And I guess, and, which has, I guess, always been sort of the problem, like... The fact that Dick Grayson isn't going around going, <laughs> I'm a little frightened. <laughs> I'm going to move. I'm going to move. Right. I'm going to get out of here. Yeah, it's gonna make, <laughs> I'm going to go to a worse city. Um, but yeah, the Joker, the Riddler. And, and I think they've eventually figured it out. And that's why Arkham in, exists. Because mm-hmm. like, somebody realized like after 10 years, I'm like, wow, you know, all of his villains are crazy. Like, and the, and you, no other hero has that. Like the Flash has the rogues gallery. They're all just crooks. Like, we like to rob banks. Hooray! And eventually they got together and said, let's rob banks together. I'm going to do cold. You do fire. I'm going to do weather. They're really simple. We'll see how they make the series work. You know? 
We'll bet be covering you, here. Bet you they make them all crazy. <laughs> I hope so. I, I really hope, like, when we have shows like Arrow, right. which everyone's really loves, I hate it when they just jump into another superhero really quick trying to are they, feed off that. Are I they really hope it's any good. of the villains? The Green, Green Arrow doesn't really have any signature villains. I am not. Because I haven't watched Arrow. I'm not up to date on Arrow yeah. at all. So I, I, I wouldn't I'm be able to tell you. I'm guessing that they're probably not. Because Why? You know, you're not putting the guy in the Robin Hood hat. Like, let's, you know, doing the beard. Let's get rid of all that stuff and just build from this, which is, to me, the best way to approach a character like that, you know. And that's also the benefit of using your your B-status superheroes. Mm-hmm. I, I contend that th- the thing that I thought would be the problem with Iron Man, because when they first said they're doing an Iron Man movie, I'm like, who cares about Iron Man? Iron Man's like B, uh, like a B-level knockoff of Batman. He started out looking like a bullet. Well, he's the billionaire superhero. Yeah. But instead of, like, working out, he builds stuff. You know, it's like, on paper, that's kind of lame. But the fact is, he's not Superman. He's not Batman. Only diehard fans had an opinion about how Iron Man should be portrayed on screen. You're right. So they could do whatever they wanted. They could make him Robert Downey Jr. They could make him so much cooler... You know, and, and, and use that aspect of Tony Stark, that aspect that you could never really get in the comic books. Like they would say, well, Tony Stark is a, you know, millionaire who's sexy. Okay, we're drawing the with page. a mustache. <laughs> like, he looks like Errol Flynn. Is that sexy? I don't know. <laughs> but if I can put Robert Downey Jr. in a goatee, now I see what you're talking about. There you go. You know, and I think they had the chance with Green Lantern because it's, again, it's the same, it's the same thing. B-level. Nobody really cares. There's not really a hard and fast persona to the character. They, but they, tr- they tried to stay too close to the comic book. And you know what they did? They lost their chance. They lost their chance for having the first major black superhero in a motion picture film. Oh, th- well, but even if you're going to use Hal Jordan, which for overseas reasons, you know, it's, just a, it's just a money thing. Um, even if you're going to do Hal Jordan, you've got to come up with a take on the character. I mean, to me, the thing that made Jon Stewart work in the Justice League cartoon was they changed the character. Yeah. They made it work for that, for this form. You know, this is, this is Jon Stewart, but he's not like second banana backup Green Lantern. He is the Green Lantern of Earth. And he's not an architect who has an afro and a, you know, vest. He's a former military man. He's not black dynamite. He's right. a soldier. Right. Which John Stewart never was before. Which Green Lantern never was before. But it actually makes a lot more sense story-wise. Like, well, okay. The whole, I mean, to me, the whole concept of, like, fighter pilot who joins the core. A fighter pilot ain't somebody who takes orders. You know? Unless that's your, your, your take on it. Like, well, the ring picked this guy, but he doesn't fit in. Then that's your story. I just think that's another example of people who didn't read the script over and over again and make right. edits. I just feel like it's oh great, we got a script, cool. Let's we got go. a script, we got a, well, we got a star, we got a concept. You know, like where's the poster? Perfect, shoot it. All right, you can't, you can't shoot a poster, you know. Well, you you would hope. So I want to lead into another superhero that you played, which was Static Shock. Yeah. Which, as a kid, I was always I was a little bit past the age range for, but right, I always right. like watched it as like my guilty pleasure. Oh, it was a great show. Because yeah, the writing was great. It had good dynamics with the characters, and again, mm-hmm. it had that arc that went throughout the entire series. Right. Which I think it probably could have gone on for a few more seasons, personally. Yeah. 
but easily. Easily. For, for what it got, I think it, 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 it had a very good run as being, it was a WB show in Saturday morning WB, yeah, yeah. and it was a show that I will want to watch Jackie Chan Adventures, and then I want to watch Static Shock, and then I want to watch X-Men. Like, that right. was my thing. Like, right. have a big-ass bowl of cereal and just watch those shows. So, you're, you end up as Static Shock. Was, was there any difficulty playing more towards the younger audience? Because this was a younger audience, even though Justice mm-hmm. League was intended for that. You're now a teenager. You're not a grown-ass man. Right. You're a teenager. Did you have to kind of research some of the hip, cool things of the time to really <laughs> connect with the audience more? Or? No, no. I mean, again, the... The guys who wrote on that show, uh, Dwayne, it's actually a lot of the same people who wrote on Justice League, were just great. And the thing is they understood that it wasn't Justice League. It wasn't the same show. Alan Burnett, um, all those guys on there were, knew what they were making. And it was much more grounded. It was a real-world show, so to speak. I mean, yeah. even though he's got you know electrical powers, it wasn't Justice League. It wasn't cosmic trials and tribulations. It was a kid who's living his life, you know, with his sister who bugs the hell out of him, you know, who gets these powers and has to figure out, well, what do I do now? What do I do every day? I got to go to school, but I should really help, you know, and it was that balance. And the, the way they portrayed it to me was great. And as far as like research, no, all I had to do was like, I mean, to me is like, wow, this is how I would probably have acted if I was 14. Like I would, I would have kept going to school because you got to go to school. That's what you're supposed to do. But then I would have tried to use my powers, you know. And the fact that he had his buddy helping him out, yeah. you know, Jason Marsden played Richie. It really the character was so grounded, and it was so nice to see a superhero who wasn't dysfunctional. That is very true, except you know? for his like family life, which was any but no, teenager. But yeah, but that's the thing. Like it was his. That's the thing. It, they didn't. I mean, I guess the mother had died, but mm-hmm. it wasn't. It wasn't Batman, you know. It wasn't like the the dark tragedy that yeah. loomed over him every you know waking day. It was a thing that sort of explained why he's helping people. I kind of attribute to like if I was going to pitch that show, I'd be like, you know, it's like Jamie Fox and Amazing Spider Man too, but he's not Dick, right? He's a teenager, right? There you go. Well, the, the <laughs> interesting thing is Ultimate Spider Man, the current Ultimate Spider Man, Miles Morales, is so static. Really, that whole show. I mean, that whole book. He's got a he's got a geeky friend who helps him figure out his powers and every yeah. So kind of and he's smart, you know. Yeah, we don't need to be saying that. We don't want any lawsuits or anything. <laughs> okay. No, so they're doing a good job. We talked about Star Wars a little bit. I got. I'm gonna try to rush through a little bit of these before we get to Futurama. Um, so. You did a voice in Star Wars. You're avidly known as a fan of Star Wars. So mm-hmm. first off, you get this voice in the Clone Wars. You're probably super ecstatic. You know, how did you get involved with that? And then I want to ask you, you probably can't tell me NDAs and all that stuff. Are you going to be a part of the new franchise, Rebels? Um, I got the part um, be, uh, actually because uh, a friend of mine uh, lost the part. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, my buddy Gary Anthony Williams had oh, yeah. originally voiced Kit Fisto, um, but then Gary got an on-camera job and wasn't available. He was doing, I think he was doing Boston Legal at the time. Okay. And they also had an idea to, for a different take on the character. Like, I think after they had already started doing the animation, um, Dave Filoni said, George said, well, what if the, the Natalins are 
you know, Jamaica, since they're, they're water creatures, let's give them sort of some vibe that's all their own. Okay. And so they went with sort of a Jamaican thing. Um, and so, you know, we began to do the voice of Kit Fisto more like this. You know, it was a very subtle, but we wanted to give it a Caribbean island flavor. Because after all, he is the Jedi who smiles. <laughs> um, and I was so excited. Because I had done a couple of other voices, I think, at that point. Or, or maybe those came later. I forget. Uh, but I, I wound up doing uh, several other voices on the show. But to be able to do a Jedi is always just, Well, yeah, you know, it's the dream. It's so cool. Living the dream. And can you tell us anything if you're going to be involved in Rebels or no? I cannot. Okay. Good to know. Um, I, I had to ask because we're actually doing an after show for it here. So, like, all our hosts are right. really excited for the show. Yeah, it looks amazing. It, it looks it, amazing. It, I mean, it reminds me of Clone Wars, but it's just like they polish it up. Like right, the animation and just it looks phenomenal. Well, it's funny, yeah. There is there is definitely a similarity in terms of the look, mm-hmm. but to me, th- they've sort of kept a through line animation wise from the micro series that Gindy Tartakovsky did. Like those character designs, to me, went straight into the character designs for Clone Wars. The fact that it's stylized, even though they're humans, mm-hmm. you know, and like sort of angular, and now they've sort of kept going, and it's like, well. That's our now. That's our Star Wars animated style now. Soon they'll just um, be like diamonds, right? <laughs> but Rebels, from what I've seen so far, looks like it has a very, very different tone than Clone Wars. You mm-hmm. know, because Clone Wars was a war show. You know, it reminded me a lot of uh, Battlestar Galactica. You know, like things, everything is happening in the context of this really big overall thing. It puts a fairly serious tone on it. Yeah, but even looking at the poster for Rebels, it seems more. Deadpoolish in a way, like it's giving well, more it rem- personality. It reminds me of um, the first Star Wars. Like it's a world where stuff is going on. There's empire and there's you know, but not everybody is consumed with that every day. To in Clone Wars, it felt like yeah, there's a war going on. You know, people don't forget that. But when it's you know in the Rebels world, it's like well, not everybody knows about the Rebels or the Rebels aren't really there yet or whatever. You know. So we'll see. Well, that's coming out soon. I'm really excited for yeah, that. Yeah, too. And then, uh, let's see here. I, I feel like there's just so much. You have you have so many like shows that you've done. I just want to talk about all of them, but I don't feel like we have the time to do it because Marissa's going to kill me if she has exactly. to stay in that booth for the next hour. Um, have you heard the theories around Fosters about like what really it is? No. You haven't? No. Okay. Since I have you here, I have to ask you what you think about these theories. Because fans... fans I, didn't know, I didn't know there were theories. I've, I've heard theories from Pulp Fiction about what's in the briefcase, but I didn't know there were Foster's theories. For Foster's, they, they mm-hmm. like to ruin childhoods on the internet. They are like they mm-hmm. like to be like, oh, this is like the darkest thing ever, like Shutter Island style things. Okay. So tell me what you think about this. They think that Frankie is actually autistic and everything inside of her, everything is this snow globe. Uh-huh. And she's just imagining everything inside of her head, but she's not talking to her grandmother. And it like shows a doctor being like, I don't think she'll ever come out of this trance. Hmm. So there's okay. that theory. And then there's also a theory that the grandmother is actually Frankie herself. And Frankie is an imaginary friend for the grandmother. And she's built this entire history around to fill the house that's now empty because all of her children have left. Because they base this on the grandmother wearing the exact same clothes as Frankie. Huh. You've never heard these theories? No. Oh, I just had to ask you because it's like it goes around the internet and so many people are just like, oh my God, you ruined it for me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, okay. 
or it's actually what he said it was. <laughs> well, it's, it's like, guys, it's not lost. There's not like great big question marks floating. It's like, what is the smoke monster? No, no. It's a house for imaginary <laughs> friends. I mean, that's not sad enough. Christ. They just they just need to be deeper. They right. need to find like, the depressing underlying. No, the fact that th- there's an idea that every child with an imagination can come up with an imaginary character and will eventually, by definition, outgrow it. That's not tragic enough for you guys? Christ. <laughs> go outside. Get some sun. I know, right? Okay, so Samurai Jack. No, Stephen, tell the truth. You came up with all of those, didn't you? I came up with every single one of them. Actually, my theory is really <laughs> stupid. <laughs> so Samurai Jack. Yes. Probably one of the greatest American animations ever made. Yeah, it's a work of art. And I can't even like that sound people who haven't seen it will probably that sounds like oh you're talking it up. No. It's watch it. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's it on probably, Netflix, right? I think it is now. Yeah. I think they might have taken it down for a bit. Oh. Yeah, it's so weird that they have these windows. Yeah, but, but find it. Find it if you can. If you if you can find it, or if you just go on Amazon, buy it on DVD. It is yeah. probably one of the greatest shows that I've ever seen on Cartoon Network. Well, Cartoon Network, yeah, definitely. Um, but it's it's the sort of thing that I can... I, there's a lot of different stuff I've worked on over the years, and some things have a certain appeal to this group and some to that. You know, some are kid shows, some are adult shows, whatever. Um, like, Pulp Fiction is not for everybody. No. I will no. say that right off the bat. I had a friend who passed out watching it in the theater. Too much the, brain The goo. needle, the needle. Oh, yeah. Um, I will recommend Samurai Jack to anyone. I believe that it is a show that anyone can find something to appreciate. It's like, well, I don't really watch cartoons. Like, then listen to the music. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, the cartoons, American cartoons are too loud. It's like, watch it. Look at the art. Just, yeah, just look at the backgrounds. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And they, they did the whole, uh, we don't want blood, so let's make everything a robot. Yes. (laughs) And it works. Yeah. Because it makes it available to everyone. Well, and it was funny because, yeah, Gendy wanted an action show. He Mm -hmm. wanted action. You know, Dexter's wasn't really an action show. Um, But he said, well, they won't let me kill aliens or people or anything. So, yeah, everybody's a robot. Such a change to nowadays, right? (laughs) Yeah, I know. But, I mean, it has has very little dialogue. Even you look at the credits Mm -hmm. and the only two voices in the entire show – the main voices because, of course, there is the the lion guy. There's there's voices in in episodes. Yeah. Is you and Mako. Yeah, sometimes it would just be me and Mako. Some, I, actually, I think I think there was an episode or two that even I didn't speak in. Yeah, it's just no <laughs> voice. Yeah, there's there's one episode with no voice completely. Yeah. And that that's kind of phenomenal that you can create. Well, yeah, in American animation, forget about it. I don't know how he got away with it. So I have to ask, though, it's been eight years now since Mako's passed away. Right. And it's been that long? God. It, it's, I know, it's been crazy. Oh. And he's... He was probably he's a fan favorite from of course Samurai Jack fan favorite from literally everything he does. Mm-hmm. The uncle in Avatar: The Last Airbender, yeah. which yeah. is probably the second American animation that is probably one of the best. Yeah, like literally hands down, you can sit down and you will watch it from book one to book five. Yeah, no, the guy's enormously talented. Do you do you he even did Ninja Turtles? He was Splinter in the the in the last, older one, the yeah. last animated movie. Yeah, it's he's phenomenal. Do you have any like fond memories of being in the studio, like together with him? Like, what was it like working with him? It was great. Um, well, it's funny because I mean he'd been doing it for so long, but he was not jaded in any way. And I just remember every time there was a laugh, you know, the Aku laugh. It would go on so long. And, I mean, I, I remember being in the booth looking out there at Gendy because, I mean, Mako would just go, ah! 
and it would just go on. And, and we would look at it and it was like, how much air does he have? He's not a, not a big man. And it was just like, ah, ah, ah. You know, and it was – he also taught me a lot about the acting and voice acting. Because before I, I worked with him, I thought it was all about, you know, changing voices and, you know, you know vocal pyrotechnics. And, you know, Mako had a voice. You know, it was a very distinctive voice. Um, and I remember there was one episode where they cast him as a second character, mm-hmm. other than Aku. And I was just like, uh, guys, who do we think we're fooling here? <laughs> like, that voice is going to play somebody else? It's going to sound just like him. And he didn't. He, and it wasn't so much that he, like, changed his voice into some other crazy thing. He just performed the character from such a completely different perspective than he did Aku that it sounds like a different character. Wow. It's just like, wow, okay. I need to pay some attention to my acting and not just like, you know. And it really, it was a real lesson. And I, I was uh, was amazed uh, and and so appreciative of learning that from him. How did you get involved with this project? Because I mean, you don't look anything like Samurai Jack. No, just to be honest. Well, I mean, the thing is, they just had auditions, just like just simple every, as that. Yeah, and um, by that point, I was sort of in the mix with uh, animation, um, and. Certainly at that time, I think it's more now, but there were very few um, Asian voice actors. Um, I think James C. was doing Jackie Chan Adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure James went up for it. I, uh, you right. know. No, no, I think James was... What voice did he do on that? I can't remember. Um, but um, basically, it's just he just liked my sound. And I, I wondered, I always wondered, i, I got to ask Gendy this at some point, whether the fact that I was non-white helped. Hmm. Because, I mean, and this is, you know, call it political correctness or whatever, but it's a fact of life with uh, media these days. If you have a character of color being played by someone not of color, it become, can become an issue. And I think, like, the same way they sort of got away with having Fred Armisen play Obama on <laughs> SNL by saying, well, he's, he's part Japanese. <laughs> um, it's like, well, it's not a white guy playing a Japanese guy. There you go. Who's going to complain? <laughs> NAACP's on our side now. Uh, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that was a factor or if it was purely uh, the voice. That's, I'd have to ask. That's really interesting. I, I mean, is that also how – is knowing Mako and knowing them how you got involved to be the Earth King for Avatar? No. Or was no, that also just completely audition? Whole different studio, whole different casting department, com- wow. not related in any way, shape, or form. Just so many – I mean, again, it's such a tight-knit industry, you're bound to work with yeah. everyone again. Well, it's a lot less tight-knit than it used to be. Really? Oh, it, well, there's so it many It used to people. be there were – all the casting was done by nine women who used to work at Hanna-Barbera. Oh. And if they knew you, you would probably get a job. Well, if they knew you and you were good. Yeah. Because that's the thing. There were – at the t- you know, at one time, there was, you know, not so much animation um, – that you could use the same 25 guys. You could use Billy West and Maurice LaMarche and Rob Paulson and Jeff Bennett, and they could do all the work. It's like, good, we're done. Yeah. We have done American animation, <laughs> you know. Um, but 
now it's with cable it's spread so much there's a lot more work and and of course they're you know trying to trim bucks and take it to Canada it's like well it's good enough um no offense um <laughs> Canada's been putting out some amazing actors though recently just to I mean with they're filming a lot of shows in Toronto right now Netflix yeah, yeah. is filming Hemlock Grove right. we have Sci-Fi's Helix we have tons of shows that are filming in Toronto and they're getting all these new faces that are yeah. phenomenal I'm not sure about the voiceover industry. I was just speaking of no, no, no. I mean, and that's the thing. There's always really talented people, um, but the problem is, if they're really talented, they end up having to come to the states to make a good living. That's true. Because <laughs> that's that's why they go to Canada because it's so much cheaper. Like because those those actors don't get any residuals. Oh wow, I didn't know that. So it's like here's your money. Take your, take your buyout. Right. So <clears throat> we got to talk about Hermes. Yes. No. No. We're not talking about him. No oh. one, if you want to talk about uh, a grade 36 level bureaucrat, you've got to fill out the proper paperwork. I stamp it. There you go. All right, we got. <laughs> All right, we're good? Exactly. Right. <laughs> Perfect. So Hermes is actually, he's probably like one of my favorite characters on Futurama. And oh, not, really? not just because you're here. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll be listening. I'll be listening to see what you say to, to Maurice. So Kiff is one of my favorite characters. <laughs> no, it's 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 because he was always the unexpected humor. Mm. And because people would never expect it from that, but then you have the character that's the limbo champion who goes right, under the door. Sweet manatee of Galilee! Who's got the brain slug for right. like an entire episode series. Yeah. And he's always the one trying to keep them in check, but always the terrible things end up happening to him. Right. And, I mean, because when you look at the characters from an outside standpoint, you got Bender, who's obviously funny. I mean, he's meant to be funny. Fry's just the dumb goofball who Mm. you love. Leela's the serious uh, fighter. Katie Seagal does an amazing job. Um, Katie's one person who I've been trying so hard to get in here because I love (laughs) Katie. Um, And then Zoidberg is... Uh, Zoidberg. Why not Zoidberg? Exactly. Why, you stinking crab? (laughs) Exactly. You have have the character that's kind of just like the one who's just over it. You're like, really, guys? Like, this is happening right now, really? But you always end up in the weirdest situations. You never kind of... You never get the girl aside from your wife who's always a bitch to you. And sometimes I don't even get her. Yeah. And then Bombado he- slim. <laughs> um, but, no, it's funny because it, it's definitely changed. I think in the beginning, Hermes was really just sort of an adjunct to the professor. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, again, we were talking about, like, when you start out a show, it's like, well, this is the workplace. And the professor and Hermes represented the workplace. Welcome, Fry. You know, and then there was the apartment and there was the love interest and, you know, those things were secondary. But as we went on and probably had to do with, you know, well, we need more stories. Each character got more and more fleshed out. You know, we met Amy's family on Mars. You yeah. Know? And then you met Her- Her- Hermes family and you found out more about his background. <gasps> yes, I was a limbo champion. I never mentioned that. <laughs> you know, um, and you randomly have a Jamaican shirt on exactly. underneath there. And stuff just added on and on and on. I mean, you know, that's the way those writers work. Their their minds were so fertile, you know. It was And it was lovely because, you know, after f- three, four seasons, you'd find out something new about your character. And you'd be like, oh, I didn't know that, but okay, cool. As opposed to just playing the same thing over and over again. Well, and you got to play your son at the same time, too. Eventually, yeah. That was after we left Fox. Because uh, when we were on Fox, we had a bigger budget. And uh, Bumper Robinson played uh, uh, Dwight back So then. it was budget cuts. You were like, okay, well, yeah. we need somebody to like, play well, this Well, we kid. can't afford to bring an extra actor in. 
But know. I think I think I, people can relate that one of the favorite Hermes episodes was with when the bureaucrat comes into Planet Express and oh, the, has yeah. has the relationship with Fry. And you have to sort to find Bender's chip and yes. sort all of the tubes. And we have a whole, like, song sequence yes. with Hermes. And you're like, you go from just, okay, you're here, you're here, you're here. Where the hell are we now? <laughs> Requisition me a beat. Yeah. And the guy in the plane, like, flying around, like. <laughs> the desk plane. Yeah. <laughs> that was Dave ha- Herman. Do you have any, um like, like creative influence over how these scenes go? Or do you just get the s- script and randomly you're singing a song? and Dude, I imagine it's not dissimilar to being one of the actors at the Old Globe Theater. Like, when Shakespeare comes in with Hamlet, you, you don't go like, does he have to be Danish? You know, <laughs> you just shut up and say the words, you know? And, we, I mean, that episode, I think, I'm pretty sure that was, that was a Ken Keeler episode. Because I know the song was Ken's. And the stuff is so immaculate, so complex, so amazing. And then when it all comes together at the end, you're like, wow. Um... Yeah, I just all I remember about that was working to try to get the notes right. Mm. You know, not a singer. Um, I'm an okay singer, but Ken, Keel- Ken Keeler is is a taskmaster, and because he has a very particular thing, none of it is. It, it's never three, you know, three blind mice. You know, mama, ma, ma. it's like no, no, no. It goes uh, uh, when I was young, just a little boy in Kingston Town, <laughs> Kingston Town. Oh God. Um, but, and you, and it's all so good, you don't want to be the one where they go, all right, fine, we'll just go with that. Ah, uh, yeah. You know? Like, if everybody is, you know, firing all cylinders, you don't want them to be the one that they have to settle for. So you just work extra hard. And, yeah, and then, of course, you've got, you know, Billy and Katie, who are just, like, world-class musicians. Like, they'll come in and knock their parts out in two <laughs> takes. And I'm like, okay, can they leave the room? Right, exactly. <laughs> I actually know with Billy's like, can you do my voice? <laughs> so. Oh man. Okay, so we talked about Hermes. We got the Simpsonorama coming up. Yes. We get the crossover between the Simpsons and Futurama be, coming on November it's 9th. It's very funny. Is it? It's going to be good. Yeah. Fans are going to love it. Yeah. Futurama has lasted seven seven seasons. It ended sadly for a second time. Yes. Um, third almost. Tech. Well, kind technic- of technical. Well, because we were canceled on Fox. Then we did the four movies that became 16 episodes. But then when that was done, as far as we knew, that was it. And then we got picked up by Comedy Central and then jilted again. <laughs> I mean, it ha- it's interesting kind of the same run as Family Guy in that it was like, up oh, here it is, up oh, gone, up right. oh, here it is, up oh, gone. Fan following is amazing, but we're just going to chat. Like, yeah. What? yeah, the studio realized, oh, we left some money on the table. <laughs> Let's go back and get it. I know, right? But, like, it, it was Matt Grunning's, um, like, second major show that mm-hmm. he released, and The Simpsons has Simpsons is still going on. I know. And Futurama, you know, I feel like there's still stories left to be done there. Oh, God, yeah. Is, yeah. Do you know if there's any plans that they're going to bring it back somehow? Because I know it went away for a few years, and, like, you know, let's bring it back. Is it just kind of like when they find a network? And we have Netflix, right. and they're doing BoJack Horseman, which you've done a, the judge yeah. on, I think it was, yeah. right? Yeah, And uh, they're starting to do some animation. Yeah. Do you think if, if, if they offered Matt and they got the rights to the show, do you think he would go with it and, not, and do more seasons? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not in the habit of... Uh, Speaking for other people. Right, who have much more money and power than me. Um, but I think, I, obviously, I mean, I believe that if a deal that makes sense comes along, Matt would love to bring the show back. I mean, he said as much. 
you know. Um, so really, it's just a matter of finding someone who's willing to pay for it. Oh. You know, um, and find some place to put it. Because, I mean, I, you know, I mean, Futurama looks really, really good. Oh, yeah. I mean, the 3D modeling on the ship and the, the, the space effects, you know. Doesn't come cheap. Exactly. You know, so it's like if somebody comes like, we'd love to have Futurama, but can it all take place in Planet Express? Because uh, <laughs> space is so expensive. Uh, I don't think, then I yeah. don't think David, uh, David X. Cohen and Matt will sign off on something like that because they're not going to, why? You don't want to put out a subpar quality. Exactly. Subpar quality product. Exactly. Yes. Um, so that's kind of all I really want to know about Futurama. But uh, as a side note, I'd be remiss not to mention Family Guy. And, uh, right. Oh, he has the weather it's- in the studio today. It's raining sideways. <laughs> Thank you. That's all I had to mention. I just had to get that. <laughs> Gotta get that I was seriously there. hoping you would do that. <laughs> um, Who wants this dog? <laughs> God. What was it? What was his uh, cameo on the Star Wars one? Uh, so, Ollie, what's the weather out there? It's space weather. <laughs> Which I love. I love that line. I love it. Um, so we got to wrap this up. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about some of the things you're promoting right now. We have Blackout Television right now. Yeah. Uh, we also have... Uh, it's our podcast. It is a podcast. Then you have uh, the black version, which is kind of like the live version where people can see it at, yeah. uh, at yeah, the Groundlings. Do, yeah, we do it at the Groundlings uh, the second and fourth Mondays of every month. So people need to go buy tickets. They need to check that mm-hmm. out. Yeah, you can go to the theblackversion.com uh, to find out about the live show or blackouttelevision.com to download episodes of the podcast which is really one of the most fun things I've ever done in my career. Well, you, it is. It's, it's, it, you're produced by Shadow Stevens. Mm-hmm. And is it Shadow or is it Shadow? It's Shadow. It's Shadow, okay. And it's like a satire of the normal black news networks. Yeah, yeah. We've got a bunch of different shows. One is like sort of a low-rent black Today show. Mm-hmm. Um, another is uh, a, a judge show called uh, uh, Lady Justice. But the, the judge is not actually a judge or a lawyer or a woman. She's just a, a sister who's been through the system and know how things work. So, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. The one interesting thing I have to ask about this, though, is because when I look at the podcast and I try to listen to them, I'm like, I can't tell if you actually get the guests or if it's just like one of you guys just <laughs> no, effing with us. We have never had any guests. I didn't think so. It's all, it's all impressions, and some of them are just way out there. Like we the just other- had Shaq the other day. Yeah, yeah, we just doing Shaq. Shaq's very happy to be on here. Yeah, no, I remember one time we did... And the thing is, it's it's all improvised. Yeah. Uh, start to finish. We come up with a premise, press record, and go. And uh, one time we were doing an episode, and, we, and I was doing the voice of Danny Glover as a guest. And I was doing this Danny Glover voice. Where we just... And one of the other actors was just like, Ooh, your voice is scaring me. Are you a ghost? <laughs> And then it just went off to, like, yes. Yes, Daddy Glover has a ghost. I'm just going to pass through this wall to get me some crayons. You just got to you know? you gotta take the yes and go with it. Exactly. Yes and. So it's it's amazing how it kind of develops that way. And just to give a shout-out, it is with Jordan Black, Gary Anthony Williams, Phil Lamar, you, uh, Danielle Gaither, Cedric Yarborough, who you've seen in Reno 911. Yeah, He's so amazing. Funny. And then Kara Maruyama. Yeah. And, I mean, when I look at the cast, I'm like, all right, this can't not be funny. Yeah, so you yeah, got to listen to it, hilarious. guys. Check it out. Follow you on Twitter at Phil Lamar. Mm-hmm. Two hours in the middle, two hours on the end. You guys got to check out the Simpsonorama coming to Fox November 9th. I believe it's at eight o'clock. I want to double when check the Simpsons that. Simpsons is on, right? Yeah, and it's, when, uh, it's, in, it's the Simpsons. It's twenty five years. You don't know when the Simpsons is on yet. Come on. Did I miss anything? Anything else you want to promote before we head out here? Um... What else is going on? Oh, um, I'm uh, in uh, Jason Reitman's new movie that's coming out this fall, Men, Women, and Children. Oh, okay. It'll be out in October. 
um, which is really, it's again, may not be for everybody. Gonna make you cry? Uh, probably. Okay. Yeah, but it's got a, it's an amazing cast and a fantastic script. Uh, you know, Jennifer Garner, um, uh, Rosemary DeWitt, Adam Sandler, uh, Dennis Haysbert, <laughs> and Ansel Elgort. Um, yeah, some really, really amazing people. Are you going to have a pretty good part in that? Uh, no, I have like one really nice scene with Ansel. Okay. And uh, yeah, we have a good time. All right. Well, let's look forward to that in October. Guys, thank you so much for joining us, oh, Phil. thank you for having me, Steve. We probably talked way longer than we meant to. I told you it goes by fast. Marissa in the booth like, ah, shut up. I have to pee. <laughs> but guys, if you're listening on iTunes, please go to AfterBuzzTV.com. Check out the video of this. Check out the video for all our after shows. We do have over 80 after shows a week here for all your favorite television series with actors from the shows on everyone. We just had Michael Angarano from uh, oh, wow. The Nick come in. Um, a recent Spotlight On interview is on our other long-form series. We have Fomka Jensen, Dave Koechner has come in. So many people just love coming in here, talking to us yeah. for a long time, longer than usual. <laughs> I think I set the record for longest here. But uh, follow me on Twitter, at Stephen Lemieux, S-T-P-H-E-N-L-E-M-I-U-X, and check me out on the last two episodes of The Strain After Show here at After Buzz TV and Sons of Anarchy. Uh, we will see you guys for the next The Voice of Interview. This has been our special edition with Phil Lamar, and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz you later. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. 